So while we're still getting settled, I want to test the mic. I have a soft voice sometimes, or most of the time, so I'm going to try to look around to make sure you're raising your hands. Um, but if I don't, can you? would you feel comfortable just to say something, Kamala? <laughs> and then we can turn it up a bit. Maybe do we need it turned up now? This is about how I speak. Okay. Yes. Higher. A little higher. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Is that a little higher? Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. So this talk is about how to understand equanimity in the Dharma because a lot of times we hear the word equanimity and it means something else. In uh, the English language it's like being passive or not doing anything about whatever we need to do about. It means so much more than that and it's so much deeper than that as Sally pointed out last night with all the various ways that equanimity is used in in the Dharma, in the Buddha's teachings. But I like to start with something very um, down-to-earth, yet also very profound, and repeat to you what I read to you from the Reverend Howard Thurman. This continues to inspire me in, in my practice, and this is called Deep is the Hunger, How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So this is the wor- uh, world that we're living in, where there, there are all these highs and lows, these joys and sorrows, this praise and blame, this fame and disrepute, uh, the eight worldly conditions that we live in. And how can we see this world with quiet eyes? I think this is what the Reverend Howard Thurman is, is asking of me, of us, so that maybe there can be a calm, a calmer inner voice and response to the world, a calmer, more rested heart, so we can enjoy that rested heart, so we can also see clearly in that restfulness. There's an inner quiet, a balance, a spaciousness that has to do with seeing the world with quiet eyes. 
And there's a deep connection that we continue to have with the world. It's not aloof. It's not disconnected from what's happening. It's really connected. It's as connected as we allow ourselves to be based on what our balance is, based on how much we know we can hold at the moment. Also being truthful with ourselves, like what's real for us, what's um, practical for us, what's safe for us to open to. So equanimity is an important subject to reflect upon because of these times we live in. And these times, in these times, there's a lot, there's a lot of up and down in, in this world because we're so used to receiving news so quickly and so much of it. It's really hard on our hearts. I speak for myself, but probably for some of you too. It's really hard on our hearts to be in this world sometimes. It's a rest for us to um, let go of the news <laughs> and have a news fast uh, once in a while. So people describe to us after retreat when we've done some of these device renunciations that it was a deeper rest for them, a place where one can find a, a better um, pathway to inner peace or the uh, ability, the capacity to have that inner peace. So it's really hard to navigate our way through the injustice, the injustice, the confusion, the sadness of all the racism, all the genderism, the sexism, the ageism, and all the isms. And there are many more I could talk about and um, give validity to. But there's all this going on in our lives. And we don't want to make that the focus of our attention right now. We, you know, we have a lot of that focus and we can do that in the world out there. And here we're bringing it in our lives, in our hearts here. But we're also learning skillful means, as Sally spoke about last night, upaya, skillful means to be able to deal with all of that and not have it kind of rev up our hearts, but can we slow down? Can we let the pond of our hearts be more um, placid and clear so that we can see deeply into it? Not only in a placid lake can we get a true reflection of ourselves, but we can also see deep into the layers what's really there. What's really affecting this heart and mind and body? To be able to bear witness to not only what's going on out there, but also to bear witness to how perplexing it is inside for all of us to um, be in the world sometimes and to know what to do with how much we receive of all the ups and downs, of all the news when I'm truthful with myself, which I try to be because of duh, you know, I'm in this mindfulness <laughs> business and <laughs> I'm, there's a lot that I avoid because it's so uncomfortable. There's a lot of delusion that can be there in my own heart. And, you know, I don't need anybody to point it out to me. I'm I'm constantly like pummeling myself sometimes for the places I'm not so clear or there is delusion. There is frustration. 
a lot, of not knowing how or what to do about all this, these isms, how to work it in a way where it can be really helpful in the world and um, not cause more pain. We live in this time of great accessibility to so much information. To um, My daughter taught me TMI, too much information, you know, so <laughs> I, we feed back that back and forth to each other, you know, when we kind of tell each other what's going on. The one will write to the other and say, Mom, TMI, you know, that's too much already, too much information. And I can say that too, back to her and my other children. The speed of information about the news of the world can continually trigger us so that what we're experiencing is a lot of reactivity, which is the direct opposite of equanimity. And we don't have really a chance to settle our hearts and minds. Somebody says or does something out there and boom, you know, it's right away praise or blame. And it's um, not that easy to to settle it down sometimes. There's this continuously uh, triggering and there's unknowingly we're reacting or responding back with attachment to how we think it should be or aversion to how it is or how we perceive it is. There's fear and anger. And for me sometimes looking out on the political scene, there's incredulity like, oh my, how could it be that way? And that's how it goes. It's, I'm, I'm just stating the obvious for a lot of us in different ways. Um, there's blame and strong emotions that naturally rise up within me about what's going on. And of course, we're only human. So I'm, I'm human too. This is the way it is for me in the world sometimes. There's a lot of unrecognized, the opposite of equanimity. There's a lot of unrecognized reactivity. But fortunately, we have this practice, this mindful awareness practice, where we're learning how to recognize more and more what's going on in here, not just out there. We can, sure, we have discernment to understand what's going out there, more and more wise discernment and compassion. But we have more to learn sometimes about what's going on in here, this inner world, so that we know what we're using when we respond to the outer world. This is what this retreat's all about. And the, the title of this retreat is Equanimity and Awareness, developing those two more deeply. With equanimity, awareness is much more powerful because we're, we can be aware of the outer conditions of the world without reacting to them, going, looking through the veil of that reactivity. We can open with awareness to this inner world without reacting to that. Because a lot of times we've got the reactivity already happening and we don't know what to do with that reactivity that's already happened inside. So what we're going to learn in our equanimity practice is to bring equanimity, to practice equanimity for the situations going on around us. We're going to bring that up. And then we'll practice equanimity with how we're feeling inside 
in relationship to that outer development, to that outer situation. So we'll learn the very important ways that we can not only be out there with our awareness and equanimity, but how do we bring it in here? That's a part that can be missing a lot in our practice. So here we're learning to slow down, to do less, to feel the earth beneath our feet, and to give ourselves a gift of sitting and walking quietly. This is the opposite of what the world is doing mostly. And so we we have this treasure, this preciousness of time here to do that. And all of us, to the best of our abilities, are learning how to take that in and make good use of it, make our time here really, really worthy of the energy we've put being here and getting here. A lot of times I had a very um, strong and stern teacher, Seda Upandita, and he would say, at different times in my practice, make every moment count. And it wasn't about being stiff and, you know, striving. It was really about understanding the preciousness of this time to really look within so we're finding that place where we can rest our weary bodies and our minds just to just being aware of what's going on to feel enough safety so that we can find that inner refuge within us that's why we have the refuges and precepts that's why we we chant the refuges and precepts in that ancient uh, way that has been chanted for 2,600 years because we're kind of joining in with all of those beings in the world that have chanted it from the time of the Buddha. So we join in with that intention, with that motivation to do no harm. And we here we chant them in English, but sometimes we, I mean in Pali, the ancient language, but sometimes we also chant them in English, and um, and of course, you can you don't have to chant them if, if that's foreign to you, but just to remember that the basis of them is goodwill, that we're promoting goodwill in ourselves and goodwill around us. And so, if we can come to that universal understanding, it doesn't have to be a foreign thing for us, just out of respect, we, we chant them in the way that the Buddha laid them out. And, 2,600 years ago. So when we can experience that inner refuge and see life more clearly, we find more wisdom in, within us. And we, we know from our own inner wisdom how to speak and act in the world. And when not to. When we see what's going on within us, when it's motivated by anger or hatred or attachment to how we think it should be, then we get more clear with ourselves and then we we can say and do things in a way in which others can really take in. Instead of, it's, it's hard to take in anger, though sometimes we have to speak loudly with equanimity. There's nothing against speaking loudly and clearly and sometimes even shouting 
like you have to say to somebody, get out of the way. You're going to get hurt if, you're, if you take that path. I know that from being a mom. <laughs> I've had to do that. You have to speak really strongly sometime, but it doesn't have to be with anger. It can be with strength and conviction and truthfulness. And you're standing on a ground that really is coming from very, very deep. So I just want to make sure over and over again that you're understanding that equanimity is not just standing aside and doing nothing and saying, this is the way it is right now and let ourselves get run over by a truck that's coming our way. But we actually have the agency to do something about it in the right way, in a way that's beneficial, in a way that's harmonious, in a way that's impactful. So um, I'd like to read from Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk who was um, at the Abbey of Gethsemane in, in Kentucky. He was a real social activist and a student of comparative religion He was really interested in the Dharma, and he actually went to Sri Lanka to uh, go to a a certain meeting um, of religious study there, cross-cultural study, and actually that's where he died quite a few years ago. So what I'm going to read verifies a lot of what we may have learned to be true for ourselves but sometimes um, we're not so in alignment with all of these words. But even if you don't agree, it may evoke perspective of your own on what's going on in yourself, in relationship to the world. This is what he thought of it. And he calls this courageous rest. So this is what he called a retreat, courageous rest, what we're doing. Some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, Nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest and do nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform, and I might add, especially in today's high-speed world. And so um, to continue on, this is another uh, grouping of words uh, and ideas that he put out. It's called the busyness and violence of modern life. So it's almost continuing on from the last paragraph. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, and to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activists destroys their own inner capacity for peace, the fruitfulness of one's own work, because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. 
So we can take those ideas and, and not go word for word, but just see how that helps us to find a way for ourselves to see more deeply the preciousness of times like this when we're resting from the everyday life and we're really bringing skillful means uh, to knowing how to face this inner world so that we can bring maybe a bit of transformation in here that we can bring out into the world. And we can really be a true agent for peace in the world. But it's quite understandable that we can feel vulnerable and agitated and depressed and anxious in our lives with how it is day by day. And the Buddha often spoke of the eight worldly conditions that uh, all of all three of us have been talking about here and there in our offerings to you. They're sometimes called the four pairs of vicissitudes that we're constantly feeling the flux of and that uh, the Reverend Thurman was referring to. They're praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So we're experiencing over and over again, in, even in one sitting. You know, you have a, a really beautiful sitting in the morning and um, then, you know, you, you're kind of looking for that <laughs> the rest of the day. One, like one of my girlfriends in the Dharma says, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> Because it's like you're always looking for that same thing. Like, how did I sit? Oh, yeah, I had my right hand on my knee, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it doesn't happen. There's attachment to how we want it to be. There's aversion to how it is. And maybe the very beginning, there's like that balance. And we're constantly in that homeostasis flux, constantly finding the way of balance and which actually this wisdom that we're learning, kind of seeing the truth of how it is, taking it in, and learning uh, those um, skillful means to navigate that, that inner place. We're learning how to be in that kind of balance where we can find that place of ease more uh, readily. And if we don't, there's equanimity to be there with it. You know, and that's where we find the ease. It said that in in the seven factors of enlightenment, there's uh, calm, there's concentration, there's equanimity, and the equanimity is much stronger than the other previous two. Calm is good, but equanimity and concentration is very good. But equanimity, when we have equanimity, no matter what arises. There can be a a steadiness. There can be an openness. Things can arise and pass away. That's why someone was talking about how we're able to see the impermanent nature because of the ability to be still, see the arising of whatever it is, pain or pleasure, the changing nature of it, and it's passing away. And the mind is completely unruffled by it. So equanimity is really powerful in that regard. So of course, uh, like uh, we feel this existential vulnerability 
in our lives. This is a lot of what we come to retreat and learn is the first noble truth, the first truth, the first wisdom that the Buddha put forth in his exposition of um, the the way things are in the um, in the first um, Dhamma talk that he gave, he explained this first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. This is the truth, the existential vulnerability that we all are born into from the moment of birth. So this is the beginning. This is like the basis of what we're born into. How are we going to navigate that is what we're finding out here. So like in the ups and downs of life, for example, in praise and blame, of course we want to be praised. We don't want to be criticized. We like to have gain and not loss. We like to have pleasure and not pain. But usually we sit here and we see that we can kind of create certain conditions where we're not ruffled by anything, but there still is pain and pleasure. There still is the, There still are the ups and downs of life. All these natural tendencies that we have as human beings, um, that we can also get lost in them, kind of get identified with them, make a sense of me or mine out of them, another form of suffering. So external conditions are triggering all, all the time, thoughts, emotions, mental states, inner attitudes that we're not so aware of but we're becoming aware of them. It's interesting that we have to open to the pain in order to see the impermanent, selfless nature of it. It isn't, it isn't opening to it so we can let it go. It's opening to all of that, the first noble truth, so that wisdom can be developed and wisdom can accompany awareness and wisdom can see how impermanent everything is. So the, the seeing is seeing the impermanent, selfless nature of everything. And this is freeing when that happens. So there's this very natural um, letting go. It's like every moment's letting go of itself if we would just be calm, clear, and have enough awareness and wisdom to see that that that's actually the nature of everything anyway. So I read something about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, about praise and blame. And when I read this, I realized um, I wasn't alone. And um, so here's a story of His Holiness. It's It's an example of how we're not only affected by the outer conditions, but we're also affected by the inner conditions, by the inner ways that we blame ourselves, or there's, um, you know, that the way that we pummel ourselves with negativity sometimes. So a friend of mine said she felt more assaulted by the inner ways that she treats herself than of the life outside because of how, what she calls herself all the time, how she refers to herself in a way that's not very positive. 
So His Holiness, in this one um, example that he gave me, is he's giving a talk on the eight vicissitudes of life, and he mentions them and says this about the eight vicissitudes. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I'm up here teaching on the throne, somewhere in the back of my mind there appears a thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me or blame me? I mean, this is the Dalai Lama speaking. But I have those thoughts, of course, too. Like I'll say something, take a little break from reading this. I'll say something and then I'll, inside I'll go, ooh, I'll have those cringing moments. You know, ooh, I I, I didn't say that right. And, (laughs) And I kind of have to let that pass and just be have the space big enough that it can be there and it can go away too, and then continue on. But so far, it's so good. (laughs) So far, so good. Um, I'll probably realize later. Anyway, he says, Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, Look, now that I'm transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected by these eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes and fears and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. Even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. Now, if the Dalai Lama can think this way, I'm pretty human, you know. It's pretty okay how my mind is doing it, as long as I'm trying to be more and more aware and skillful with how I respond. So with these unpredictable outer conditions and the unseen habit patterns within that are constantly coming about, it's no wonder we can feel closed down sometimes. A lot of times people come to retreats, and me too, where I feel I've been handling so much in life. People think, you know, as Dharma teachers, we're walking on clouds, but there's a lot <laughs> that we have to handle with um, all, you know, different facets of life, our own families and um, troubles. And so it's no wonder I can understand how all beings can feel closed down. We can get overwhelmed with anxiety and we don't want to feel. I mean, sometimes I just want to get in somebody else's movie, you know, and and go watch him, kind of like a, a cartoon thing with my grandchildren. We can feel disconnected from our own hearts and so discombobulated that we can't respond wisely or compassionately. We say and do things just whatever we think, we just, pooh, it just comes out of our mouth. We don't have any idea where the Dharma duct tape is, you know, that we can put on our mouths and say, okay, I'm not going to say that right now because it's just going to cause more problems. So the important questions to ask ourselves is, how can we stay open when it's so hard? There's so much stuff to stay open to, even just what, just what comes our way. And connected to it, instead of closing down and saying, Sometimes we have to do that and say, that's enough. I, I just have to take a break for now. And 
get ourselves together? How can we stay open and connected to the outer conditions and with equanimity? I like the way Achan Sumedu says it is, it's like this now. You know, it's, it's just taking in what's going on and it may be like terrible. It's just the only thing you can say about it is, is it's chaotic, it's turmoil. We don't have to say the exact political thing that's going on. It's just, it's like this right now. And we say that compassionately, we say that with kindness, because when we say it's like this right now, a lot of people are suffering. And we might be too. We usually are. Well, speak for myself. And then as well as the inner conditions, it's like this right now in my heart. Like I can face a situation in my life and say, that's really hard. How am I going to do this? But, and then be all into like what has to happen outside of myself in order for things to go in a way that's right for the family, for everybody. And I forget myself. And I forget to say, how is it in here right now? And to be able to say with kindness, it's like this right now in here. A lot of us are are caregivers. I'm a caregiver too, to someone close to me. And it's easy for caregivers, I'm always reminded this, it's easy for caregivers to forget what's going on here. You know, caregivers for our children, for our partners, for our elders, for our animal friends. So, um, to be able to see clearly inwardly and say, yeah, it's like this right now in my heart too. It's pretty hard. And I'm still, I'm still going to handle it, but it's pretty hard. So that when we are sensing clearly, if the inner state, because we're looking clearly, is unwholesome, like maybe we're angry or we're bitter or we, we have like um, um, self-righteous indignation about something. And we, we know that if we speak out, it's going to be like, you know, if we speak out from that place or we act out from that place, well, people may kind of open their eyes and wake up, but will they really receive it? And so that's where we have to be careful. So when the inner state is what we call unwholesome, then we can refrain. When we know that, we have the agency to refrain. We don't follow willy-nilly just what comes in our habit patterns and just, just let it out. We don't have a sense of agency then. We're just letting habit patterns take their course. But when we see that the habit pattern is unwholesome, we have the agency to refrain. When we see it's wholesome, then we have the agency to go forth and do something and let that play out, that wisdom and compassion play out, so that we have a really appropriate beneficial response to the outer situation. So otherwise we're reacting to the situation through unconscious habit patterns, not through true choice. That isn't through true agency when we don't really know where we're coming from. And we're adding more suffering and confusion to the world or ourselves or we're being paralyzed by them because we don't act, because we don't say anything that we should have said 
Maybe we just have to wait a moment before whatever's going on inside dies down. It's just a moment, maybe. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's a longer time before we can get it together enough to say the right thing, to do the right thing. So the second question is that we can ask ourselves, how can we stay aware yet compassionate towards ourselves when we do react? And we oftentimes judge ourselves after that. And then we're paralyzed again because maybe we we did or said something and, uh, you know, it caused a kerfluffle and now what do we do? But we can bring um, equanimity there also. So again, equanimity towards both the outer and the inner. So this is what we'll be doing in our practice. We'll be learning how to bring that equanimity. We're going to learn a habit pattern to replace old habit patterns, to bring a sense of equanimity and loving kindness out there, and to bring it in here as well. Because we often need it in here, in the beginning, more often than out there. So we need this quality to navigate the inner terrain and the layers and crevices and hiding places where these habit patterns come from. And know them clearly. Not just the outer terrain of the ups and downs of our relational life with family, with workplace with social and global responsibilities. If we're clear in here, we're more liable to be clear and effective out there. So equanimity, that word implies balance, but it's the subjective experience of being spacious also. It's a spacious, calm, balance, well-grounded It's not just up in the air with a lot of wisdom. It's grounded with compassion. It's very embodied, compassionate wisdom. It's not balancing on a razor's edge like, ooh, I'm just so scared if I go this way a little bit, I'll tip over or that way a little bit. It's often, the metaphor of a mountain is often given that has a wide stance. And from that stance, you can... One of the um, translations of one of the uh, Pali words for for equanimity is tatra majatata, I think. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it correctly for my um, people who hear this who know Pali. But it's not balancing on a razor's edge, but it's being in the middle of things that implies balance. And when you're in, your, in the middle of things, you see all sides. It's like being on the top of a grounded mountain and you see all sides. The sides that you don't want to see, but we need to take in if we're going to act clearly. And the sides that we know of, of ourselves too, to know the courage that we have to know maybe there's patience that's really there, to know that there's flexibility there, to know that there's perseverance there, to know those, that sense uh, of wholesomeness that we have that can um, be applied to the sense of agency when we act in the world or not act. Sometimes we don't remember that we have that choice 
to not act sometimes and wait. So this spacious balance implies that the heart and mind can be big enough to contain all that life presents, not just what we prefer, because in that way, you know, what we see, and speaking for myself, what I see in my own life is that, in my own practice, is that I've lived in a very narrow space. I've lived in a space of this is how I think it should be, this is how I want it to be, and all the other place is like, mm, I didn't want to open to that. But in the Dhamma, I had to open to everything. So being, it doesn't mean that we just open to what we prefer or we're saying we just want to open to what's pleasant or open to the light. We also have to open to the places, the shadow side of ourselves and see what's going on there. So I love this poem by Izumi Shikibu, a poet of Japan in the ninth century, who said, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So that's the courage and the, maybe the intention that we can have when we're doing this kind of practice when we're here together. We're all encouraging one one another to, we can do this, we can open to how it is. The Buddha in the Majjhima Nikaya said this, this was quoted, um, registered in one of the great texts of the Buddha. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind and heart that is vast like the sky. So this is describing one of the qualities of equanimity, this vastness, this sky-like quality that can contain not just what we prefer or not just, you know, what we want to open to the light, but to open to the everythingness of life. Because that's the way we, we don't really learn when it's all pleasant. We really learn and grow and transform from opening to the unpleasant as well. So to really survive and thrive as a human being, we have to have a big enough space in the heart and mind to contain all that comes to us in the natural experience of our lives. And to know how to navigate it. That's what we're learning here. Opening to it and then knowing the skillful means of how to navigate it. This is what uh, Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, his, one of his students. The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. And that wonder of being human is like how we can transform ourselves. But it, it takes training. It takes putting effort into it. It's not just... It's not about just being calm. By now you know that. Calm is just not very high on the... uh, We can go much more than that. We can be calm in the face of the highs and lows. 
we can have equanimity with it. That's a deeper calm. So I was been uh, reading about Nelson Mandela, uh, who became the anti-apartheid revolutionary president of South Africa after he was imprisoned for 27 years. So this is one of the most honored activists for human rights who uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize. When he was imprisoned, he must have already had the potential for a lot of equanimity. And he worked on it, probably, through all the things that he had to face, you know, out in the fields that where he had to do his, whatever he was assigned as, as a prisoner. So all of the ups and downs of his life must have held been held in a vast space for him to come out of it and have so much wisdom to make the strides uh, that he did in in his country. There's still a long ways to go all over the world. But um, without him, what would it be there now? So in this vast, restful, clear space, there can be a lot of wisdom because we're not seeing through the veils of the habit patterns of our minds, the veils of avoiding, ignoring, confusion, aversion, attachment. It's just a very clear space to see things as they really are and not to back down because it's so hard to see. We might have to work up to it like really seeing in those crevices and cracks of our own hearts and minds where things are hidden. We know the truth of the moment uh, within ourselves and outside of ourselves with equanimity. We know this uh, more clearly. And then we can take the most skillful action or to know that it's better not to do or say something. So one of the... um, ways that we use the equanimity practice is to say some very simple uh, phrases. I've mentioned one of them already. It's like this right now. And a lot of people use that already who are, who've uh, been studying in the Achan Cha tradition uh, through Achan Sumedho. And um, that works for me. And another one is, this is how it is right now. Meaning to say, It's how conditions have come together in this moment. It isn't like this is how it is and it's going to be this way forever. It's more like reminding ourselves that, okay, this is how it is right now. And the next thing is, what am I going to do about it? It's not just standing there and and realizing that. So there are loving statements, accepting the everythingness of life and yet not holding on to how we think it should be, but finding the skillful means to respond. The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it's a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. And what the Buddha is talking about here is something much deeper than uh, our, the relative world is to see in inwardly and to see that in the outer world also, to see the, the wisdom places that really transform our lives. And I'll talk about this 
on an, in another Dhamma talk how equanimity helps us to open to transformative wisdom that actually transforms how we see ourselves in life. And this wisdom is seeing the impermanent, selfless, or not-self nature, and the dukkha nature, the unsatisfactory nature of life. The unsatisfactory nature, dukkha, means that because everything's impermanent, we can't hold on to anything that's going to give us lasting happiness. There is happiness in the world, but it also goes away. You know, conditions come together and they fall apart. And we don't experience that particular happiness forever. The potentiality for it is there, but I always have to have a little more explanation of dukkha. Otherwise, you might not come back for the next sitting. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes the, the first noble truth, uh, there is dukkha. There, there is the truth of dukkha. Sometimes it's translated as life is suffering. And that's a really poor translation. Um, so the real, the true translation of the two words, dukkha, satcha, is there is the truth of dukkha. There is a truth of unsatisfactoriness. So I want to tell this story of a friend of mine who gave her permission, who said that um, the practice of equanimity really helped her in her life because she had a lot of ups and downs in a, a relatively short period in her life. She saw a lot of um, gain and loss of uh, joy and sorrow. So a few years, um, quite a few years ago already, one of her grown sons disappeared. And he was in his early 20s, I believe. And the family didn't know where that son disappeared to. Um, My friend and her husband did the best that they could and couldn't find anything about the son. They had search warrants out, etc. And all she could do was keep an inner vigil that this is the way it is for now, still doing the best she could, this is the way it is for now, around in this situation, and this is the way my heart is taking it too, the inner situation. Of course she was upset and sad, and um, there could have been a, a lot of other things going on in her heart. And it was a great mystery and a great loss for her. There was a lot of sorrow and a lot of pain. And there's one sentence that she used for her equanimity sentence. It was something like this. All beings have their own journey. Though we do not know what it is or understand it. I mean, those last words were like what it really meant. All beings have their own journey. It's a mystery sometimes what a person's journey is and how that person opens to life and finds their own way. And so eventually uh, she and her husband um, knew that a daughter was going to have a child in Europe so they said, let's travel there and, and be with that because that would be a happiness in our life. But before they left, the son appeared. So she had this sorrow And then she also had this joy. 
she had this loss and also this, um, you know, uh, gain in her life. She, she experienced those ups and downs in, I don't know, that it might have been over a couple of years. I'm not sure of the timing now. So they left and arrived at their daughter's place in Europe and there was, gave birth to a beautiful young uh, daughter, I believe. And so there was a lot of joy in her life. And uh, not long after that, they received a call from uh, the U.S. and the mainland. And uh, what they learned was, tragically, a, the younger son, not the one who had disappeared, but another one, younger son, had tragically died. So there was, just in this short period of time, there was gain and loss, joy and sorrow, and now a great tragedy. There was birth and there was death. And so we see it around us every day, but as she said, it becomes real when it happens to us or to somebody close to us. So she said she owed her steadiness to the Dharma and it saved her life. So she could be sane. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son alongside the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been really helpful. So this is what uh, equanimity can do for us. Um, It can help us stay open with that metaphor of the sky and stay grounded with that metaphor of a mountain and yet balanced in a place where we can see all sides. And maybe we don't understand everything, but maybe we can open to the mystery of it all and let that be somewhat okay or more and more okay. So we're not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Everything that has already happened is an event beyond our control. Because it's already happened. All the things have already come about, all the karmic conditions, causes and conditions, and the effect was this, these conditions. So we can't turn the clock back and do something different now But our response to it is our sense of agency. How we respond to that has impact in the world. It has impact on our karmic stream when we do something wholesome about it for ourselves and for others, and it has impact in the world. So we have great and huge influence over how we respond to things. Rather than rushing into a compulsive reaction to whatever's happened. So we take time to understand and to, to act in a way where we can be open to what's going on. We can have some great care and compassion for it and we know what's going on in ourselves so we can act appropriately instead of through a willy-nilly place in our lives from within. So the far enemy, and we'll speak about this more, uh, the far and near enemies, um, because they're um, 
they're also similar in the metta practice. The far enemy is reactivity, of uh, far enemy of equanimity, and this reactivity comes in two parts. It's the aversion to the unpleasant and attachment to the pleasant. And then, um, so we're learning about a, a lot about that now. And then the um, near enemy, let's see, is um, which is called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity. It's called indifference or apathy or passivity. Sometimes people call it fake equanimity because um, maybe something can happen and inside we're, we're angry or we're sad and we don't want to show it. And, I mean, that's our prerogative. But we might say, you know, I'm cool with that. Or it's really okay and it's really not. When we're, it's like we're trying to act equanimous. But inside it's difficult. So that kind of passivity is showing up like we don't really care or we're in denial of what's going on. We distance ourselves. Some, some people, when I ask them, when they say, I'm not connected, you know, I ask them, what's, what are words that you would use around it? And a person would say sometimes, there's a coldness or, an, or um, a lot of space between the experience and the being with it. It's a, an aloofness. So a lot of ways that uh, can be described. I want to um, tell a story about how I experienced bringing equanimity to the outer situation and also to the inner situation that helped me through a difficult time. I was um, in a conversation once with one of my neighbors who came to the house because um, came to my home because she was really upset. Something it was something about uh, the um, the dividing line between our properties and never mind the details. And um, she was really upset. And she she's taller than a lot taller than me. She's almost six feet, and um, a strong person with a a really strong voice. I think I can, I can, I have a soft voice, but I can be pretty strong sometimes with my voice. You can ask people who know me. (laughs) Um, And she was raising her voice and really upset with me because of the situation. And so I knew that, okay, this is how it is. It's like this with her right now. I'm not going to deny it. She's really upset. And, and she had her own reasons to be upset. And I must admit, if I were in her place, I might have the same upsetness. So she's really upset right now. This is how it is. So I was bringing equanimity to that outer situation, right? And so it was okay. Then I thought, all right, it's how it is. It's not going to be forever. It's just the situation right now. And then... I said to her, and then I thought to myself, this is how it is within me. I was noticing within me, I was 
having the compulsion maybe to say something in a way that I wouldn't like myself later on. Or, you know, certain words were framing to defend my point of view, etc. And then um, I thought, well, I better not say anything because I see this inner situation, inner equanimity also. So I said out loud to her, you know, I think I better not say anything because I'm not clear right now. And she said, you're right. You're not very clear right now. And it was like, whoa, did I have to bring more equanimity to my inner (laughs) world? I'm still like, why did I say that? You know, (laughs) I could have said something else or not have said anything else, just be quiet. But it's, it's a way that we learn, okay, let's bring equanimity out there to the situation. Of course, if we need to do something, if we need to get out of the way, if we need to say really loudly, stop, if we need to use our hands to, you know, protect ourselves, I'm not saying we don't do that. Of course we do that. But we assess the outer situation and we do what's appropriate in, in the best way we can without letting ourselves be harmed or another person be harmed. And then we look at the inner situation too and see what's going on here. Can we bring equanimity right here also? This is how it is inside as well. So we can, we can see more clearly what's going on inside of ourselves and make the right decision about it. What to do. I want to read something about a sense of agency that's really important to understand in, um, in equanimity practice. This is from Goethe. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So that's our sense of choice, true choice that we have when we see inside, we assess a situation outside and we can develop equanimity on all sides. I'd just like to end with um, this uh, vision I had um, continues to stay with me, a strong memory of this experience I had of one of my last times when I was with my first teacher, Manindraji. And it was um, a time I went to visit him in India. And I didn't know how much longer he would live, so I went to visit him. I did get to visit him another time before he passed away. But this time we um, met in India and the last place we were at, it was in Varanasi in our travels, one the oldest city in the world, I think. And before dawn, 
uh, he wanted us to take a boat down the river of the Ganges. It was a clear and warm morning. And um, he wanted me to see, you know, it's, it's kind of a Buddhist way of opening to everything, the everythingness in life. He wanted me to see uh, the uh, burning ghats where the bodies were burned on the side of the river. And also, he said, maybe we'll even see a floating body. I mean, it's only your Dhamma teacher who can want something like that for you. (laughs) We didn't see something like that, but um, we took a boat, and it was really a beautiful morning, and uh, floating down the river on this boat. And on my right side were the burning ghats, and there were people wailing, and some crying, some, you know, just could see sadness was there. And then I was sitting in the boat with Manindraji, and I was really happy, you know, to be with him. And of course, a mixture of seeing the sadness, feeling that in myself, and the happiness of being with Manindraji as well. There was the end of life on one side, obvious, people dying, people dead, you know, and on the left side, there was a sun rising um, over the river. There were um, the poor and the destitute, of course, that were there. And it's kind of like uh, how it is in the rawness of, of India, which is, is such a beautiful thing to me to see the everythingness of life. And there was some despair and compassion in my heart for that, for seeing all of that. Of course, there's a richness of it all, um, of life there too for me. And there was the good fortune that I felt that I had having Manindra, the mudita, the joy that I had for my friends who were there and uh, for being together. Seeing life in all of its rawness can break your heart and feel helpless sometimes. But I really felt the grace to be uh, and see all of that. So there was so many disparate things, opposite things. Um, the birth of a new day and the death of life that's part of everything. And the sadness and the joy and also the, the compassion that I had. And the times when I... It was hard for me to open, you know, the closed downness. So the, just the spaciousness of all of life and how the heart can hold it all. So can this be for us too? This is how it is in life. So let's sit for a moment. Some quietness.
thank you for your kind attention. It's about um, 25 minutes to walk now and coming back for the hall, in the hall for chanting, if you have the energy. And will this be a shorter sit? (laughs) Inviting them all, maybe, we'll see. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.